this is Godfather. Send your traffic. Over. Roger. Line Sierra. Four enemy personnel. Break. Welcome to the Greenside Podcast. This is your host, Taylor Mooney. I'm here in the studio today with a very special guest. I have former Secretary of the Army, Eric Fanning. I want to thank you, sir, for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'll give a little background on who you are so the listeners know what we're talking about. You are a 1990 graduate of Dartmouth College, um, the year I was born, just in case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> Is there enough reasons to feel old when you come back to campus? Right. right. You spent 25 years, uh, Secretary Fanning spent 25 years in government. Uh, you worked as a congressional staffer and consultant, then you then you joined the DOD. You held positions such as Deputy Undersecretary and Deputy Chief Management Officer for the Department of the Navy. You're also the Deputy Director of the Commission of the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction, Proliferation, and Terrorism. That sounds tough Helpful. to fit, that yeah. sounds tough to fit in a business card. And then you went on and became Undersecretary of the Air Force. You're Acting Secretary of the Air Force. You're a special assistant to the Secretary and Deputy Secretary of Defense, which I've read as a Chief of Staff-like, Staff, yeah. basically, in a nutshell. And then it culminates with you became the 22nd Secretary of the United States Army. So, really, I'm just curious. You left Dartmouth here in 1990, and you decided, I'm going to D.C. and I'm going to work in the government. Like what was the drive there? What was the interest? Well, actually, I came to Dartmouth uh, as uh, I wanted to be an architect. I was an art major when I my freshman year. But what I didn't think about, and I'm sure a lot of people don't think about, is Dartmouth is in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has the first primary uh, in the nation for the presidential election. It was the 88 election, and the, both parties had open primaries. There were candidates here on campus, it seemed like, every day, and I kind of got the bug. Hmm. And by the end of freshman year, I was working at the Rockefeller Center, um, uh, and I was interning or research assistant for a former governor who was here as a fellow. And I went to Washington after that freshman year and interned on the Hill, and that was it. I knew I wanted to go back to Washington uh, after I graduated. So interesting. So it was from doing like a, just an internship, working in the, the halls of Congress, listening to the the bells ring for votes and making copies. But you got that bug of like, hey, this is a pretty pretty cool place to be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened if I had gone to school in a different state and not had those. You know, New Hampshire's not a big state, and no. so presidential candidates are going to come through Dartmouth. Uh, some of them quite a bit, and so you were exposed to them, and it just opened my eyes to uh, a different possibility of what I might do with my life. Right. Now, I read that really crazy cool bio of yours, all those cool positions. I just want to point out, I told you earlier before we started this podcast that I went to Navy, Navy for two years. I do acknowledge that you oversaw the Army when they finally beat Navy. I won't hold that against you. But, you know, in, in actuality, it makes the rivalry much more interesting. It's a little stale when you. Yeah, it was boring, and the Navy had uh, had forgotten how to win gracefully. Now, uh, so we needed to to uh, take it take it back from them. I don't. Did you ever see any of the the memes online that would show like I don't know, like a Walkman or a Game Boy, and say this was cutting cutting edge technology the last time yeah. Army beat Navy. Yep. Yeah, I mean, now it's be- reset. I mean, they they made all, a big to do about having fourteen stars on their helmet, and I'm like, you need new helmets now. Nah, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was a great, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, you know, I I certainly uh, will always be associated with the Army because that's where I had the most senior job. But I was in the Air Force job twice as long as the Army job, and I was in the Navy job twice as long as the Air Force job. Mm-hmm. So stepping back, uh, being outside of government now, it's nice to be a little bit more joint in my perspective on it. 
but uh, I'm not going to lie. That was a highlight of my career. Um, 25 years was watching Army beat Navy last year. Because I saw a picture where I think when you were outgoing that the perhaps – I don't know what's the what's the lead general of the army even called. I don't chief know. of staff. The chief of staff. Yeah. And the marine me doesn't know all the terms. So the chief of staff, I think, presented you uh, an army game helmet or something at some point in this. Yeah. The so I, I think it was ESPN or or some outfit said that uh, of all professional and collegiate ath, uh, athletic teams uniforms that the Army football team was the best last year. It was a pretty amazing uniform. And so you're going out and they ask you, you know, what do you want? They 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 have to give you your flag. That's somehow written in the Constitution or something. And, and I said, you know, I'd like to get one of those helmets because they give you a lot of stuff that you don't want that goes into boxes and goes into storage forever. But right. uh, the helmet was cool. Being the secretary for that was cool. Uh, and so I just wanted to remember that and have some, some memento of it. Right, yeah, that's a pretty worthy memento yeah now I don't, is the uniforms the army had i don't know if you even know this under armor are the under armor uniforms you know is it nike uh, nike nike army's nike yeah. see navy made the transition to under armor when i was leaving there and wasn't a huge fan i love the nike gear i like what they did with it no i wear under armor stuff nothing against it but sometimes they get a they try to they're trying to compete with Nike, and they get a little too adventurous sometimes. And like, whoa, yeah, the whoa, Navy had some in. pretty funky shoes last year. They kind of looked like they needed to have a house dropped on them or something. Right. Yeah. See, that's the Under Armour trying to be new and edgy, which is good sometimes, but not all the time. So, back back to business. I, I was curious how you deal with you've been Washington. How do you deal with the politics of Washington? In particular, you know, you read a bit about you, and you see that Senator Roberts blocked your confirmation over something nothing to do with you. In fact, he said he liked you and he was going to vote for you, but he blocked you, I think, over issues over Guantanamo Bay and Obama, and he wanted assurances about the closing or the running of Guantanamo Bay before he would vote on your confirmation. And you're sitting there like, hey, this is the most senior cool thing I've ever done. This is like what I was thinking about in 1990, 89 or something when I was at Dartmouth, and you're blocking me because it's something that has nothing to do with me? Like, how do you like... Yeah, it's. It, and by the way, the, the confirmation process as a whole is is nearly broken. It's onerous. It's difficult. Uh, it's amazing that we get people to come in to government. I I was lucky because I was already in government both times I went through the confirmation process. But uh, he had done this to my predecessor and gotten what he wanted in assurance that the the only supermax prison in the military system is an army prison at Fort Leavenworth. Mm. Um, and the president, President Obama, wanted to shut Guantanamo. And so he was looking at all of his options and where it could go. And, and Roberts didn't want those detainees in his state. And so I got caught up in that. And it's just a matter of you work it, you work it, you work it, you work it. It's essentially like a campaign. And in fact, we were using the graduation at West Point as the hook to try and get me confirmed in time for that. The Army needs its secretary at its commencement. And Roberts was cooperating at this point, but it was taking time to deal with the negotiation between the White House and Roberts. And the day I was confirmed, I actually thought I wasn't going to get confirmed. And I was out running an errand just to distract myself. And Roberts calls and says, we're going to the floor in two hours. And that's how fast it happens. And the next day I was sworn in and at work. Interesting. That's, you know, that's the one thing I think perhaps for me, when I think about do I want to get involved in government, that is... A deterrent where I think like, you know, if I work this hard, this is something I talk about with my loved ones and friends and going back in government service because I have a passion to serve, you know, in government, whether it's the military or other capacity. But certainly when you see stuff like that, you're like, man, why would I want to 
to get involved in government when I could go this whole career and then some random six-year-old dude who just is having a bad day can block yeah, everything I've done. He, like, do you, you know, most, not many positions require Senate confirmation against all of the ways you could serve publicly. If you, you know, if you count the military and civil service and even, even most political appointments don't require Senate confirmation. And it was just a, it was just a timing issue for me. I, you know, I was a, a Democrat and the Republicans had control of the Senate. If the Democrats had control of the Senate, it would have been an easier thing to move through because we had the majority. Now, in hindsight, I'm proud that as a Democrat, it was a Republican Senate that confirmed me because I can point to bipartisan support. Um, there have been two attempts to replace me by the by President Trump, and neither one of them has gotten confirmed by a Republican Senate. So it was it was a struggle, um, and you just have to look at the silver linings of these things. It brought more attention to me. It brought focus on my credentials and the bizarre thing. I was unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate by a vote of two to zero, because if it's not a roll call vote, it's just who's ever on the floor. And it was John McCain who was trying to get me confirmed, and Pat Roberts who was just trying to get this assurance. And each of them trying to outdo the other in terms of how credential I was for the job. So that's not bad for the brand in that regard. But I would have preferred to have been at work four months earlier than I was. Right. That's understandable. And since you brought it up, I actually want to bring up a question I was going to ask you later is, you know, you kind of a good focus of your tenure has been diversity. And then most recently, Senator Mark Green was put up as to be your replacement and then he withdrew his nomination because he was facing a lot of criticism about, I think a lot of it was about homophobic and transphobic remarks he made previously. I mean, do you see that as being a victory for the Army that, you know, I don't to get too political, but having someone like that that's made those comments, is that the future of the Army? Is that where they should go? So I, I've never met, uh, I, I never met Mark Green. Um, uh, and my own experience is that uh, things are very easily taken out of context. So, you know, they, they were moving towards, he wasn't even formally nominated. They were moving towards a confirmation hearing to let him explain his point. That's what a confirmation hearing is for. But no, I don't think in, in general attitudes like that are what the future of the Army is. I think it's very important uh, for a number of reasons that we open up opportunities as widely as we can in the military for people who meet the requirements and, and can perform whatever duties they need to perform when they're in uniform. Because I think it's important that the Army reflects society, that society sees itself in the Army, because there is a growing divide between the two, 45 years into an all-volunteer force. I think it's important that we recruit from the widest talent pool that we possibly can to make sure that we get the best and the brightest into the military. And I think that uh, as we do that and bring more people into the service, I think it's important that they have a secretary and, a, and, and that supports them and that recognizes the valuable contributions that they bring to the force. I think it's a good perspective. And I know you, I don't know what official capacity or job you were holding when things like don't ask, don't tell got repealed and, you know, replaced the policy we have now. I know I was, I don't, I think I might've actually, I can't remember. Myself, I just remember it being talked about. I don't know when it actually went into effect. But at the ground infantry level, there was certainly, and this is just very anecdotal, my personal little tiny experience, but not something that was looked at very positively. It was something that was very much talked about negatively, to put it, to put it kindly. But I think it's important to get it out there why, like what you said, the military reflects our culture at large and why doing things like that and helping people come out of the shadows 
is an important part of the military of the future. Did no, you experience any like? Well, I didn't experience anything personally because at that point I was a deputy undersecretary of the Navy, and and no one's going to say anything to your face at that level. But mm-hmm. you know, to, to your experience, part of why this is important is no one part of America owns the right to serve uh, and owns the right of service. And uh, all these other people are Americans who are capable of serving. And when you are exposed to different things, it can change hearts and minds and attitudes, um, even having one different person in the room. And my experience on a lot of these issues is we every year, the Army alone assesses, brings in more new recruits than the entire Canadian Armed Forces. Mm. And they're coming out of a society that's different than the society I came out of as a high schooler, that my father came out of as a high schooler. And they have different expectations and different experiences. And it's not as big a deal to them. It also is... The military is not a monolithic culture, and there are different parts of the military, the infantry being an example where there might be more traditional attitudes. Um, but as we broaden service and diversify things, attitudes change. All right. And I think that's important. Again, this is anecdotal. I know when that happened, I mean, I, I heard a lot of negative things, and I had no opinion either way because I just really had never been – I've been very much lived in my bubble, and that's fine. That's just life. You know, you join at a young age. And so you hear people say the things they said about it then. I'm like, okay, like whatever. Now the me would probably stand up and say something. But the me back then admittedly did not, you know. But as I went on in my service and I went to like the officer Navy pipeline, I just so happened to have just get paired with, not that it matters, but it was an interesting thing to point out that, that all my roommates, and then I selected a lot of my roommates, were all guys that were homosexual. And it doesn't it doesn't matter we lived in the same barracks room it's open there's no divider there's no room there's nothing they're normal everyone's a normal human being and everyone does a job everyone has a life we got along great i mean we go out the club there's just no issues there and i think it kind of speaks to what you're saying is it wasn't so much change in my heart and mind because i didn't have a negative view of it i just didn't had view. a reason to think about it and right. your story plays itself out over and over and over again and you you can go back to when truman integrated the military increasing opportunities for women in the military, gays and lesbians. Each time it happens, I mean, the, the people think that this is a um, sort of the seismic shift for the military. The military has actually been at the forefront of a lot of integration stories over the course of our history. And it's just a matter of exposure. And my own personal experience is a, a lot of people don't care about it. Some people are negative about it, but they haven't had to confront it in any way. And once they do, they realize, well, it's not really a big deal. You know, we're right. we're still fighting. The sun's still coming up. What you know, whatever the day is going to go on, and so that's why um, you know, in many ways, the most important thing that we do as an LGBT community or whatever it is is just be open about who we are, so that people see it and realize it's not a big deal. Most of these transitions. Certainly, there's that there's that chatter out in the field, but once it happens, it, it's not really that big of a deal, and we move on. That's very true. You're, you're very right, and people, well, I think maybe that's a part of being. And I'm 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 picking on my own community because I was this as well too. You become a, a professional complainer in the in the Marine Corps infantry. I mean, it's how you get by. You need you need that really. You need to be able to complain about everything because that's how you get through some of the just ridiculousness you have to do as being, you know, a lance corporal in the infantry. But yes, I think at times you just complain blindly, and then once it happens, you're like, oh, I just continue living my life, and the weapons still need cleaning, and people still do their job. And you would think, I understand why, I, you know, in that community, there was like those more traditional, like you said, views, 
at the end of the day, I think another thing infantrymen can learn, and I'm speaking only that community because that's what I know, but we, if you really get down to it, in the wartime fighting force, I valued someone who could do the job. Can you carry the weight? Can you shoot your weapon? Can you? Are you competent? And I think once you get into actual combat, that's what matters. It's because I've seen guys that were jacked, buffed, roid dudes, and they would fall out of a hike before anybody else. And who would take their extra weapons from them? Some scrawny little redheaded kid that you thought you'd pick on, and he's the biggest hoss of the group. Yeah. And I started to learn very quickly, you shouldn't judge people in all these book, like the, the surface type of things, and the real metal of a man's going to be tested, or a woman, is going to be tested when it comes time to do your actual job, and that's the only thing well, that And that's matter. all these people want, is to be judged on their ability to do the job and have the opportunity. And... Uh, like I said, I think it's important that the military reflect society and that, that the opportunities be expanded to as many people as possible. There's a great Barry Goldwater quote that I don't care if they are straight, I just care if they shoot straight. That's a good quote. I like it. So kind of going into now the veteran realm. Now I know, how much does the secretary and the army even deal with veterans issues? Is that more of the secretary of the VA? Do, how, what is, how much does that fall in your purview? It is mostly the the uh, secretary of the VA and the Veterans Administration, but the Department of Defense um, has an important role to play in that, uh, certainly the military departments, because that handoff, uh, you know when someone is preparing to be a veteran, and we can we can make them more successful, their experience as a veteran, if we do some preparatory work while they're still in the Army. Uh, so work on transition, um, a whole series of things. Uh, help them transition into the outside world in terms of figuring out how to find employment outside of the military. Um, making sure that the systems in the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs talk to each other so that things aren't lost in the seams when that transition happens. And a place where I would have really wanted to do a lot more work had I stayed in the job is making sure that we have diagnosed all injuries that people receive while they're in service, including the invisible wounds that we know so many people have, so that as people go to the Veterans Administration, they are getting the help that they've earned through service to the United States. Because we know now that a lot of people leave the service or, uh, or are in the service without proper diagnoses of injuries that they've received in, in combat. I think, again, an exceptional point because in my own personal experience as far as being um, enlisted, uh, being in the, the Marine Corps, I don't have PTSD, but I have a TBI, a traumatic brain injury from an IED blast. And it did get diagnosed while I was in the military but only because through just complete fate, fortune, whatever you call it, I met a very powerful general who thought I should have some treatment at Walter Reed and plucked me out to send me there. That doesn't happen normally. And I see so many guys I know, because, I mean, you go through certain parts of the war, IEDs are just it's the thing. It's a cool thing to do. So a lot of guys have been blown up. And when you get a traumatic brain injury, there's a lot of physiological, physical things that happen in the brain. Wires and connectors get disconnected and they regrow back. And so a lot of the symptoms you have, you know, whether it's um, you can be a little shorter triggered, you might be a little more prone to anger, you don't process things well, or you have headaches, or you, all these types of physical things, I know I felt, oh, it's psychological and I'm just being weak. I need to stop it. And then, but it kept coming back, right? I kept like, someone would not bring me a pencil. I'm like, where's the pencil? You know, I would get mad at something stupid. I'm like, why did I just snap out a pencil? You know, why am I having headaches? Why can't I remember where my car was parked? 
not just me, it's just the fog or whatever. But it's important for guys to know that, and it helped me to know when I finally got to go to a doctor, thanks to that general helping me out. This was a physical thing. It may be for me, because you still want to have this tough guy mentality. Maybe for me, knowing that it was physiological took some pressure off of me. And there's nothing now, there's nothing wrong to say if you're having a, a psychological well, problem. I'm not saying that, but. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, but we have to get at that stigma that people impose on themselves and impose on others about psychological issues because mm-hmm. we now, many people, myself included, um, believe the science shows us that 100% of people who go into combat come out with PTSD. And roughly 80% of them find their way out of it on their own, which leaves 20% that don't. And I don't want to oversimplify it by saying it's just how we're biologically hardwired, but I would be concerned if Americans, if soldiers and Marines went into the environments we send them and weren't impacted by it because it goes against thousands of years of evolution, what we ask you to do when we send you into a combat zone. If it didn't impact you, it would scare me. And I'm not sure I'd want to give you a gun and send you into one of those places. And it's biology in many ways, the, the people that can get themselves out, but there's people that can't. And so in the army, we have been trying to push help out into the battalion level to make it more readily available to people who need it so they don't have to walk across the installation and go into a building marked, you know, here I've got PTSD or something. But I think we need to go further than that and flip the paradigm altogether and say, this is going to be something that you need. When you come back, um, you're going to go through this type of screening and get this help if you need it because we've asked you to do really incredible things and of course it's going to have an impact on you. No, I think... And that leads me to the idea of what I'm going to, I'm going to pitch to you. You can, you can put your secretary of the army hat back on for a minute. That hat's in storage. So. <laughs> well, you're not going to dust it off just for five minutes. Cause I'm going to pitch you my idea very quickly and how a problem I see. And I think the transition is a huge problem. I've counseled, I've counseled fellow veterans, anything from let's make a resume to, Hey man, take the gun out of your mouth. You know, you're not going to kill yourself tonight. And, Whatever end of the spectrum you're on, to me, it always comes back around. You talk to them about purpose. They have found no purpose and nothing to sink their teeth into after they have left the service. Now, some of this has to be some self-motivation. The, the government and the VA can't hand walk you through life. So there is a huge aspect of that. However, I do think we spend three months of boot camp and then a whole career worth of conditioning you to be a good soldier, Marine, sailor, airman, which is exactly what they should be doing that's the military but when it's time to get out I would like to see a little more reconditioning to being a civilian and in my perfect world what I would do is remove people completely from their battalions or units when a month or two out and maybe even have some housing where people who are separating go to the separate housing because you're not going to steps and taps and separation classes and going right back to your unit and getting chewed out over some military thing you're, you're changing your mindset over so you have that part but really what gets me is the classes themselves. I'm sure the people who work in these separation classes work very hard, and I don't mean to put them down, but I get guys showing me resumes and things out of these classes. And I'm like, oh, my God, Like, well, this is this is your resume? Like, dude, you're not going to – no, 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 you're not going to get anything out of that. And it's very disconcerting. And so I know I've worked at very various veteran services things. So th- some things that I think that could be implemented is – you know, allowing 
let's allow some veteran services and nonprofits on the bases because I've heard a lot of them have a problem getting on the bases, especially Marine Corps bases for some reason. Let things like the Posse Foundation, a Warrior Scholar Project, our service to school, get in there and just let guys know those opportunities are out there because they don't even know. How can you apply for something you don't even know about? But even taking it a step back, getting people to have competent resumes and then how to transfer military skills and then articulate that. So the thing we did when I was at George Washington was the pitch. So the military, if they recruit in local business owners, especially like hiring managers, things like that, I know it can be tougher in different regions and cities, but you do what you can and you bring in hiring managers and you have these guys work on the elevator pitch to you. And then, you know, we would assign them a mentor. And then the next day would be a mock job fair where you actually get allocated like a 10 minute window at this booth of this job fair and you practice your pitch and practice talking to a prospective employer and they grade you. Now in this competition, the winner ended up getting a cash prize. I don't think DOD is going to give away cash prizes, but the theory I think is good there because so many guys, I mean, flat out do not know how to articulate mm-hmm. whether it's written or verbal, how any of their skills match. So I'll be like, Hey, look at this job. They'll show me a job announcement. Like, yeah. You, you've done those things. You were a squad leader in the infantry, right? Like, well, I haven't, I haven't, uh, done that like well have you ever taken counts of weapons and night vision goggles like yeah i'm like oh so you managed and maintained over a hundred thousand dollars of government assets and reported it to higher grade specialists that's how you need to be able to convert that and they can't do it so anyways you allow some of these guys to come on the base you get them out of their battalions and their units and their brigades because that's just poison still if you're trying to transition you you do events like a pitch where they can get better at it and and then lastly, a thing that really helped me, and I don't know how the logistics of this would work, but one of the best events we did at GW was we brought in guys who graduated in the past two or three years. Because let's just be honest, when you're looking at someone presenting to you, if they look like you, if they're kind of near your age and you can identify with them, you're much more apt to listen. And again, nothing against the people working there, but it's a lot of like, oh, I was a retired master chief. You know, I'm in my 60s now, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't identify with that. And your struggles or what you went through is different bring some guys back they're like hey and it helped me a lot at gw hey you're a veteran with a bachelor's degree in dc well so are forty thousand other people and just bluntly being told you need to you need to rebrand yourself you need to refine you need to find your niche outside of just being a vet and having a degree you have to have a specialty and expertise and i think hearing some of this raw advice i was like dang like i never you know i kind of thought like having a degree and being a vet was kind of cool which it is but there's 40,000 other cool people. Mm-hmm. So you got to learn to stand out. So anyways, I think, again, stepping people from the brigade, bringing in some of these nonprofits, actually doing some real good solid work on resumes, on their pitches, and then, you know, you, you follow it up with having some guys just being real and honest, like, hey, you're going to have to get rid of, I mean, I have one now, but you have to get rid of the deployment beard sometimes. You're going to have to be presentable. You're going to have to show up in a suit. You're going to have to have a good resume. You're going to have to be able to articulate it and not have a dip in your mouth. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And some of you guys just don't get it. I mean, is there any feasible way, maybe my whole program can't work, but is there, some, is there some way the DOD can improve this process and make it real to really help people transition? Well, absolutely, but it, it's a matter of, it's also resource. I mean, what you've described is going to cost a lot of money. Right. Um, and we already have kind of a, 
an availability issue, certainly in the Army. We have 100,000 soldiers who aren't deployable right now. And so that would add a lot of time. It's just a matter of getting the investment and getting it in the budget and getting Congress to support it. But I think one of the key things for transition, too, is what I hear from soldiers is they they would have they would have benefited from having some of that transition when they came into the military. Here's the things you need to be thinking about. Because by the time we give them the advice as they're going out, it's too late for them to make adjustments in how they approach things, how they think about things, what services and benefits they take advantage of. Right. I mean, do you think again, this you're not in the position to sign the order anymore, but I mean, even just step one, I mean, I hear so many nonprofits that do just school stuff, do higher education issues. They can't even get on the basis. They won't let them on. They can't come into these classes, or if they do, it's like they have to go to each individual base coordinator. Well, that is an issue I spend a lot of time on, and and, uh, the the military does need to be more open, and we are now than we were before. Secretary Hagel, in particular, having been enlisted himself, took this issue very seriously of access to base. But there's there's multiple sides to every story. Um, Opening up, it's not as simple as just saying you can get inside the gate. It's office space. It's telephones. It's a whole series of things in support. Again, that becomes a resource issue for, and another thing the base commanders got to deal with. And so we always wanted to encourage, I always try to encourage base commanders, commanders to do certain things, but I don't want to be too prescriptive in what I tell them to do because we keep adding responsibilities and authorities for them. But something we have been working through and need to continue to work through. And so this might be my, I mean, just my ignorance of logistics, right, of how, I mean, because essentially as a secretary of the Army, like the CEO of the Army, that's kind of more of your role. I mean, and you talk about logistics and money and budgets, and that's totally true. I think just from like a layman's standpoint, with the lower down sense, and you could totally school me and correct me on this. This could be some type of Lance Corporal, like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but that's not how life works. But this issue of funding, like the amount of money I mean, we, we see it around how much is wasted. You're like you couldn't you couldn't put a little bit of more money to like transition because right now it's, it's not, like, if you're. What, I think what you propose is to, taking people out for a couple of months as they're leaving. That's my um, big. That's my most that's, amazing. That's wish a lot. That two yeah. two months for every single soldier is a lot of money. I'm not saying that's not a good way to spend the money, but it's yeah. not a little bit of money. It's right. a lot of money. And then to do all the things you're talking about is it's not just going to be private organizations. And and our requirements as a military for what we do during transition are not generated within the Army or within the Department of Defense. We have things that we're told to do by Congress, by the Department of Labor, who, who, who manages some of this transition. So there's a whole lot of equities at stake here. But uh, two months times every soldier, sailor, airman, marine is a lot of time. Right. What about the feasibility of just bringing in? And by the way, you know, a lot of people don't like the transition at all. They don't want, I mean, we make people, because we're required to, go through resume writing classes when they just want to retire. Right. Um, and so it's it's possible that, you know, I, I don't think one size fits all. Um, and we need to that's think true. about how we tailor it to what people are trying to do and what they might need. Right. And I think that's very true. I know that usually separation classes are looked at as a huge, just giant pain in the rear end right like i gotta do this before i get out like listen i know how to run my life i was a i was a dang marine for this many you know but they get out and they they don't they just don't know how to do it and i I think that could be a piece where you get those recent vets coming back like hey you don't sometimes you need a good punch in the mouth metaphorically well some people aren't gonna i mean maybe you need to take that two months after they've left and they have eligibility for certain things a year or two years they do their transition when they when they realize themselves that they need it as opposed to forcing them through it as they're going out and they've got a lot of things on their mind and they haven't 
had the real life experience on the other side to realize, wait a minute, I should have taken that seriously. So we, we should get more creative about it yeah. um, and continue the public-private partnerships that we're doing with industry that's doing a lot to bring people in. So when you went into being the Secretary of the Army, did you have one or two or three things that these are my things that I'm going to accomplish? And did they get accomplished? Yeah, I... You know, it's kind of weird. I, I moved through so many different jobs over the course of the Obama administration. And when I got the Army job, I didn't know how long it was going to be. I didn't know what was going to happen in the election. I didn't know if I'd have more time after the election. But I had to plan uh, with the idea that, assuming I wasn't fired, uh, that it would that it could possibly – the short term would be January 20th, 2017, January 20th this year. So I did develop a plan for that time. There were things I wanted to do. Uh, in terms of implementing uh, opportunities for additional Americans who didn't have them for service. There were reforms I wanted to do in how we field technology. I wanted to get things into the hands of soldiers faster. Uh, I wanted to do things in the cyberspace that involved creative partnerships with people outside of the military. And we accomplished all those things. I mean, when when the election happened, uh, I... Uh, we sort of looked at what we had done. We made sure that we were going to finish whatever it is that was on our list. And then we packed every single minute we could uh, between the election and the inauguration just to take advantage of the remaining time we had. But I feel, you know, I had a plan for this year, too. It would have been nice to dive into that because there were things I wanted to do, like we discussed in PTS, and continue some of the acquisition reform work that we're working on to get things out into the field faster and to take advantage of how business operates differently now than they did when we built our systems and processes. But what I set out to do when I started as the Secretary of the Army for 2016, we got done. So it felt good. Um, was there any chance ever that in your mind that the new administration would have kept you on? Like, I, I don't, again, I, it's ignorance of me for politics. Why is it just, does every president go in and wipe out most positions and replace them with their people? I mean, is that usually how it works? Uh, it wasn't in my mind uh, because it, it would have been very unusual. Um, President Obama kept President Bush's Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, and that had never happened before. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't expecting to. This was I had worked the incoming Clinton, Bill Clinton transition, the incoming Obama transition. This was my first, my third transition, but the first one outgoing, and it was different than previous transitions I'd seen because they they didn't keep as many holdover people. I mean, and the, going to the Clinton administration, going to the Obama administration, we kept people, um, some people permanently. Uh, and that was part because we kept Secretary Gates, but other people we kept until their replacements were confirmed, just so there was some continuity there. They kept almost nobody, uh, and I, but I didn't anticipate that it was going to be me. You typically don't give, if you think, when, especially when it's a switch in parties, you don't want to give more stage time to someone in the other party that you think might have a future. You want to get them off the stage as quickly as possible. Right. And I was ready to go too. I'd served all eight years. Um, and was tired as I predicted I would be. Right, yeah, I imagine being in those positions has to be extremely tiring as you're, I'm sure just your travel pace alone, visiting bases and going to ceremonies and just quite exhausting. You're, you're trying to, you know, there's never enough time to do all the things you want to do. You've got, there are soldiers right now in about 150 countries around the world. And so you're, you're trying everything, every day, every trip, you're just packing as much as you can into it. And I knew, I told my, if I, if I wasn't eight years ago when this all started, I said, if I'm not tired, if I make it eight years and I'm not tired, I didn't do the job very well. Right. Now, do you ever have, from all those times you've visited, do you have a favorite experience or like a, like a soldier, like the meet and greets or favorite story or 
anything like that where you were out there on the shaking hands and visiting bases that really like stuck with you or maybe even me seemed to make the job and the struggle and the travel worth it all? I think, uh, well, the travel's worth it. It's, it's grueling the schedule that I would put together again, cause there's just so much you want to do, but, um, it, I would have just gone crazy and gotten depressed. I think if I had just stayed in the Pentagon for eight years, I mean, it's good mm. for my morale to get out and see people. There's no, there's lots of stories. There's tons of stories. And, it, and remember it's over the course of the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force and the Army, all the services had some amazing experiences. But I think, you know, the, the, the type of story that probably impacts me the most, and it still happens now, even when I'm out is when I get an email or someone pulls me aside and says, you know, seeing you do what you did inspired me or gave me the courage to to stay in the military or to get in the military. Um, that's the kind of thing I, I like hearing, why I think it was important, again, to broaden those opportunities for people so that we get a more diverse set in the military and the rest of society sees, wait a minute, that, that could be a place where I could go. There are people like me there. But uh, I loved all the base visits. It was always a struggle because the commanders always want to just – you get off the plane, they want to stick you in a windowless room and give you a PowerPoint presentation. And the rule was we don't do anything in the field that we could do just back in the Pentagon. But it was – you had to watch that like a hawk. Like I want to be out with soldiers doing what they do where they do it. And if I can do it with them, great. So. I want to let you know from the very low-down perspective – you seem like a very kind man and I've enjoyed this talk, but when you guys come around, it's awful for everybody because I've had to clean my room 20 times over and everything's way shinier than I ever thought it could be. Um, and I wonder, do you think part of what you said, like these base commanders try to, I mean, not like keep you away from the guys, but like the more they can keep in the room and show you a PowerPoint and control the information flow, the less opportunity there is for their career to be impacted negatively. If you see something and, you don't like you think that's part of it that's what it seems like on our end so they're all yeah i do think that's a big part of it it's certainly a control issue and it's easier for them to contain your visit if they if they keep it there but i and i would literally get up and walk out of a room and say i'm not that you know that this is exactly what i said i didn't want we're gonna go across the road i see some soldiers over there um it got better, but not all commanders are like that. And it was interesting in the Air Force because I was in it, the, that job long enough that at the end I was having commanders organize the trip who had had different jobs and different assignments and seen me on a visit before and knew what I wanted and mm. knew I'd be happier that way. And we made an effort, I made an effort to really try to use social media to reach out to the force a little bit more. And there was an unintended benefit to it that I didn't realize. First of all, those organizing the trip that um, knew what I wanted because they were seeing it online from previous visits uh, or and on social media. And the, the commanders would say, okay, we know what he wants to do because I just saw what he did at the base before mine. And so we're going to give in and make it, happy, it happen. He'll be happier. And what I would always say to them is if you're squared away as a commander, um, that's the best way to show me your installation. Show me your soldiers doing what they do. And by and large, across all of my visits, I was always impressed. So I don't, I'm, you know, I'm, it, it's a control thing and maybe it's an insecurity thing too. But, you know, I'm like, come on, guys, have some confidence in this. We've got great young people in uniform and I want to go see them. With that being said, did you ever have a moment where in all the capacities you held through all the branches where you meet somebody and there's just some some lord some listed guy says something and you might find it funny internally and maybe even do laugh but you can see all his chain of command and like oh my god i can't believe 
you just said that to like is ever does anything stand out to you like oh my, he just said that to me that just happened We're not the- I, it was exceedingly rare and uh, never in a case where I thought someone was getting in trouble I mean you could tell you certainly could tell you mentioned having to you know clean your room or whatever you could tell when some poor young soldier or airman or whatever had been made to rehearse what they were saying a hundred times over and you just felt terrible for them and I'd ma- always make a point of giving him a challenge coin or something like that to reward him for what I knew was probably a terrible experience preparing for my visit but I can't think of any, you know, there, there were certainly some moments when, when you're like, wow, that person's being awfully candid, but never <laughs> crossing a line that, I, that made me or I thought the commander uncomfortable. And, often, and, and, and I made a, you know, my team got better. And mind you, I did this over all four services. And so sometimes you had to restart. Like I'd get to the Army and some commanders would treat me as if I had never set foot on a military installation of any kind whatsoever before. And I'd have to say, look, I've done this before. I've been, I know how that works. I know how this works. But, but one of the tricks was, like I would have lunch with, I always tried to have lunch with a junior enlisted and I wouldn't let the commander in the room. And so that was one. Yeah, it was exactly right. But that was one of the tricks was to keep the commander as far away as possible. And my team was pretty good about that. You know, my my exec was a colonel. And if the colonel thought that that the commander was loitering a little too close, he'd find a way to engage in a conversation and slowly spin him off to the side to try and make it a little bit more. It's hard enough when you're the secretary of the army to get some 19 year old to feel comfortable with you. Um, but I developed a lot of ways to, to create that rapport pretty quickly. But it, it, it was hard to do if you got a bunch of colonels or generals, you know, that are loitering over and leaning over the conversation. So it was trying to, to create some distance was one of the tricks that we would come up with. And did you personally ever have a moment like, an, you know, what it makes me think of is, do you remember when George Bush was president? I don't know what event it was, but he gave a speech at the podium. It was like a foreign event, I think. And he went to the doors and they were both locked. He kept trying. He just kind of stood there and kind of looked stupid as the president of the United States. Did you ever have a moment where you just like something like that? Maybe it wasn't even your fault, but you like tripped on a carpet or you said something stupid or knocked something over. Like, man, I just really look stupid as the secretary just then. Yeah, I certainly plenty of moments (laughs) because I always liked to do. um, You know, I didn't just want to be with the the those in uniform. I wanted to do what they were doing. I had fun doing it. I like loud noises. I like jumping, flying, whatever it is. And sometimes I wouldn't get very good instruction. You know, the the Navy and Marine Corps just throw you into something. The Air Force, to ride one of their cars, you got to get a half day of training. And the Army's like the Navy and Marine Corps. They Like I was on a fast rope tower and the, there was a, I was up there with the two-star commander. He says, do you want to give it a try? I'm like, yeah, what do I do? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, well, it's called gravity. You grab the rope and you go down. Um, but sometimes you didn't get the proper instruction on how to do it, and and you realize later I look like an idiot, like a you know jumping out of a tower, you know when you're you know, simulating a parachute jump, and I had a weak exit, I think is the term that they use because no one told me what to do. Right. And I was yelling at my military assistant. I'm like, go make me do it again if I don't do it right. A, I want to do it again because it was fun, but you got to tell me how to do these things so I know it because then you got a picture of me looking like an idiot, but. It was still fun, fun to do, but there were plenty of things like that because I would say I'd want to do something and they would just hand me the weapon and throw me in a drill or something and not tell me what I was supposed to do. Um, so I'm like, I want to do it, but 
just take a couple minutes to explain to me um, what to do, which sometimes works against me because I think probably of all the things I did in all the services, the thing that got my heart pounding the most was throwing live grenades in the army. So they did give me the instruction and and really, you know, they take in the pit and show you all the things that you could do wrong and what the instructor will do if you do that. And I hadn't thought about all those ways I could screw up. And now I got these live grenades and going through my mind are the five ways I could really screw up. And so you're (laughs) increasing the likelihood that I would do one of those things. No, I, I played baseball growing up, but when I went through the great live grenade toss, I'm like, you know, dude, you got this. Don't come on. It's like throwing a baseball. It just explodes when it lands, but you're fine. I threw it and we were fine. They didn't have to grab me and throw me out of the pit and cover my body, which is the protocol. If you dump a grenade in the pit you're in, but I threw a pretty line drive toss and I did it. And the instructor looked at me and he was like, dude, that, that was really close to hitting the wall. Like, don't do that again. I was like, oh, God, can you imagine? Like, if that's how I go out in training is by I blow myself an instructor yeah, I, up. Like, oh, well, my God. But, yeah, that's like not really what anybody at that installation wanted from me either. But I think I had I, – I threw it very far. I could have lifted a car at that point. My adrenaline was pumping so crazy. Right. Can you explain this – this made me think of this. Can you explain to me – you were part of the Navy Marine Corps team for a long time. Were you there when they instituted the CFT, the combat fitness test? Were you there when that became a part of the – I don't remember because that wouldn't have been an area that I worked on. Do you remember what year it was? I want to say it was somewhere around 2010, 11. I think I was there because I seem to remember um, Juan Garcia was the assistant secretary for Manpower Reserve Affairs who went out and did the CFT. Um, So I think that was probably around the transition time. But it wasn't anything. In the Navy job, I was working on management and efficiency issues. Well, I have a theory about that particular test because the physical – fitness test of PFT makes sense and the CFT I mean I know it, make, it makes sense and there's good reasons for it but on the lighter hearted side when the, when it first came out because I was in when it first came out we're like and this is going to be part of our promotion points you're like wait a minute so so what we run like a chunk and with boots and utes boots and you know utility pants on but no top okay so you run like a few hundred yards then and then we get somewhere and we just press some ammo cans like, okay I kind of get that a bit and then what really got me was just I think that's a movement to contact course. And I don't remember exactly in step how it goes, but you start like low crawling or and then or baby crawling. I'm like, when do I have a baby crawl? So I crawl like a baby, then I crawl on the, right, on the ground, then I get up and I zigzag and run through things. I get to the end and then I grab a, I grab a fake grenade and try to throw it in a circle they made, drop and do, for some reason, three push-ups. That's the magic number. Get back up. At some point, I pick up a, a, a partner that's there and I buddy drag him half the way. That one makes sense. And I, you know, fireman's carry him. I get back. And then I like pick up some ammo cans and redo the zigzag and come back. And you're like, how the heck did they come up with this scenario of events? My theory was a bunch of generals got in a room. They got their drinking scotch. And they're like, dude, what can we come up with? They're, they'd actually implement this policy. And they just started throwing out random, random physical tasks. Because stopping and throwing a fake grenade into a, a hula hoop and doing three push-ups just like seemed like so bizarre to me as part of like a physical fitness test. I know you probably had nothing to do with it, but um, do you think Paul Severus decided that way? A bunch of you guys in the room with scotch drinking saying, can we actually get this It could past? be. It wouldn't be generals though. It's usually colonels. Oh, it's colonels that yeah. do that. That's that's the people I can place the blame on. Um, and lastly, do you have any... I wish it were that way, actually. We might come up with better decisions. We probably would. Some, some cigars and scotch. Everyone just talks around. It's probably amazing what you could accomplish. And maybe you wouldn't have me throwing a grenade as part of my... A fake grenade and a hula hoop as part of my physical fitness test. Um, but I wanted to ask you, 
when it comes like the last piece of advice to people who are looking to enter government service um and you can even focus on like maybe marginalized groups especially comes to the military in particular is there any piece of advice or words of wisdom you could give to some young person who's thinking about joining the military or joining government service that focuses on the military um, well, I think his advice is probably applicable beyond people that want to go into national security. What, what I tell um, young people who ask for advice are kind of two simple things, which I think have contributed to um, where I was able to get in my career so far. hope it's not over yet. But uh, uh, one is do whatever you're asked to do well. Um, whatever task you're given, whatever project you're given, uh, do it to the best of your ability. And the second is to um, develop and curate and care for relationships um, because that's going to matter, particularly as you go further through life. You're going to keep running into people that you work with, and they're going to remember the good people that they worked with, that, that are good people in, in being the sense of being decent people and good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And I think as I think about this more, the other thing that I tell people, especially if if they aspire to positions of leadership or they get in very demanding positions, that it's critically important that each person have a good, strong sense of self and knows what's important to them and what their limits and boundaries are uh, so that if they ever get to the point where they're being asked to cross them, step beyond them, uh, it's muscle memory for them, and they can say, "No, that's I, that's not who I am, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to turn against the person I want to be and I believe that I am." And so, uh, as I as I go out and I think about that, I think that's just a very important thing that everybody has that sense of who they are and what's important to them and holds on to it. And this is my last question, and pretend like no one's listening. Are we going to see perhaps so an Eric Fanning that runs for Congress or <laughs> Senate or another government position? Is that in the future? Uh, for a number of reasons, I I cannot picture that being in the future. <laughs> um, I, you know, I I mean, there are practical reasons. I've now lived in Washington D.C. longer than I lived in Michigan growing up, so there's just not a geographic base. Mm. I think one of the one of the real problems with government right now is the amount of money in campaigns, the amount of money it takes to run. And, and the process by which you have to go through to raise that money doesn't appeal to me at all. But, uh, you know, I, I, I tell people that my career is a series of failed job searches. I, <laughs> I never, there's the only one job I can think of that was a specific job I went after and I got. All the rest of jobs were jobs that I didn't, think about or I didn't even know existed um, when I ended up going into them. So I, I don't know what the future is. All I know is I'm trying to enjoy a break. We got a little puppy at home that we're <laughs> that is taking more of my time than I thought it would. And uh, I'm trying to spend as much time with students and on campuses as I can. And we'll go from there. What's it like being back here at Dartmouth? You're here during Green Key Weekend. For those who don't know, it's a big party weekend. Does it bring back old memories? Because it's pretty, it's already now while we're, while we're recording this, the, ba- the band's already on stage. It's already pretty rocking, pretty raucous. Is it uh, bring you back to the? It does. Uh, you know, I I love uh, I love coming back, and I love it more each time. I suppose as I get older, and I you know it's something that when you do get older, you realize all that stuff was wasted on me when I was young. Because one of the nice things about coming back to campus now, when you're driving and and you come up, and then so the green uh, unfolds in front of you, is. 
it's nice to come back to Dartmouth without a pit in your stomach because you're coming back <laughs> for the start of a term and you got all this work to do. Yeah. But uh, it's great coming back, and especially when the weather's nice like it is now. Absolutely. Well, we're glad you came back. I'm glad you came on the show. I want to thank Secretary Eric Fanning for coming to the show today. And with that, you've been listening to the Greenside Podcast. <laughs>